There are the words of Daniel, Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may mean then that your prosperity will continue. And then the words of the king, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all of his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Loved ones, it's hard to be an American today and not know the last name Kardashian. Kardashians are a family of famous people. Daughters are models. More importantly, they are experts at at putting their life out in front of everybody to see. Became famous through a, a television show about their family, following them around and all of their dramatic exploits. They have lines of products that they get people to buy. People imitate them, follow them on Facebook and Instagram and every form of social media that you can find. But if you ask yourself honestly, what have they accomplished? It's hard to put a finger on it or say that they've accomplished much of anything of substance except for this. They've made a living by getting people to glorify them. We often speak of of glorifying God. And I hope you realize it's not the same thing. (laughs) To glorify God, well, really to glorify anybody, means to give them credit for being good and, and to do so not just with words but also with actions with with the attitudes of your heart where you consider them to be great and good and to the point where you want to talk about them to the point where you want to emulate them and imitate them and there's one big difference between glorifying god one thing that sets glorifying god apart from everything else from all glory that you might give to human beings and that is how you glorify god as a believer in him You glorify God with a repentant heart. The Bible tells us whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction so that we might have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the Scriptures. Everything in the Bible is written for our good, for us to learn, for us to be built in our faith. So what of this strange story, this strange long story, that we heard today about a king and a dream about a tree that meant he was going to act like an animal for a while. How does that build our faith? Well, let's hit the important points. There are two famous stories in the book of Daniel. One is the the three men in the fiery furnace, the account of, of three believers in God who were told that they had to worship a 90-foot golden statue. And then when they were refused, they were accused of treason and sentenced to be executed. But the angel of the Lord protected them from even the scent of smoke getting on their clothes. And the same thing with Daniel chapter 6. Daniel, a godly man, was commanded to worship a king, not the true God, to pray to him. And when he refused, he was convicted of treason, sentenced to death, 
thrown into a pit of hungry lions, and the angel of the Lord protected him too. But between these two stories is the one we hear today about the ruler of Babylon, the the ancient world's huge empire that included dozens of countries ruled by one man, Nebuchadnezzar, and how he had a dream that really bothered him. The dream was about this giant tree that looked like it touched the sky. And it was so big and so fruitful that there were thousands and thousands of animals that were able to feed off the fruit that this tree gave. And also, it provided protection for them. Shade and shelter for the animals on the ground and nests for all the birds that wanted to live in it. And then this voice from the sky comes in Nebuchadnezzar's dream and says, cut it down, chop it up to pieces and spread it all over the place. Just destroy the thing. And, and just so that you know that this is no accident, take two chains and, and strap them over the stump to keep it from growing, and keep anyone from touching it. When there was no one else who could tell him what this dream meant, Nebuchadnezzar called for Daniel, his wisest advisor, and more importantly, a, a believer in God and a prophet. And he told him exactly what the dream meant, and and that's what really bothered Daniel. The dream itself was odd enough, but the meaning of it, well, who among you would want to tell the most powerful man in the world that he's not as great as he thinks he is face to face? Nebuchadnezzar was going to fall hard, and he was not just going to lose his power, he was going to lose his mind. He was going to take on the mentality of an animal, not a human being. In fact, he was going to live by himself, and the way that he would be surviving would be by eating the grass from the ground itself. And that's exactly what happened. Not right away. About a year later, Nebuchadnezzar was admiring the the city of, of Babylonia and thinking about his huge empire. And just in that city alone, There was a lot that he had built, as well as the people who had come before him. He ruled everything from modern-day Iran and Iraq to Egypt. And they say that there was a huge temple that was built upon the remains of the Tower of Babel in that city, some say. He also built the the, the seventh wonder of the ancient world, the hanging gardens. He he imported enough ground to make a mountain and and had plants from all over the world growing on it just so that his wife, who came from abroad, had something that reminded her of the mountains of home. And he took it all in. Maybe he had some guests and was looking around and said, look at everything that I have accomplished. In spite of Daniel's warning, he let his guard down, and he got arrogant. He wasn't admiring his empire so much as he was admiring himself. And God decided to teach him a lesson, took his power away, and had him live like an animal until he was ready to acknowledge that the Lord in heaven is the highest power that there is and that his rule lasts forever. And he did. He repented. And we even read that his kingdom was restored to him. End of story. At least for Nebuchadnezzar. But not for God. 
Hundreds of years later, there was a preacher by the name of John, the, the son of Zechariah. And one of the things that he said to people, especially those who were not as great as they thought they were, was the axe is at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down. And people who knew the story from Daniel knew exactly what he meant. It was time to change. That's what the word itself, repentance, means. It means to have a change in the way that you think. This is not just a matter of changing your opinion or your preferences. Like sometimes we do out of, out of just experience, saying, well, I'm not going to listen to hip-hop anymore. I'm going to listen to classical music because it's easier to concentrate during that, when, when that's on. And it's not just changing your opinion either, like changing from Democrat to Republican or Packer to <gasps> Vikings fan. This is a change of heart for your eternal good that we're talking about. You see, the first thing that has to happen in repentance is something called contrition. Contrition is this fear that you have that takes hold of a heart because of a person's sin. Let's say, for instance, that you have a couple that is married for a number of years and then things turn sour and he starts really mistreating her, ignoring her, then verbally abusing, even physically abusing her to the point where the neighbor hears a fight that's going on, hears some crashing, hears rumors, and decides enough's enough, I have to call the police. Then he gets scared. Scared that he might not get to see his kids again, scared that he might get thrown into jail, scared his marriage might be over, scared of what other people might think of him. But that's not contrition. All sorts of fears can enter the heart, but none is contrition, not the contrition that God desires until that person's greatest concern is what God thinks of him. Until that person's greatest concern is eternal death. Contrition means realizing that the sin you fall into is just a symptom of a heart that is so arrogant to think that you know better than God. Contrition is a fear in the heart of God that comes when you feel that God's directions for your life really don't matter, and then you wake up to the fact that you're wrong. The question to anyone who fears how their life will change because of a sinful mistake is, are you afraid of what God says about your sin, or are you just afraid because you got caught? When God miraculously puts that fear in your heart, the fear of hell itself over your sin, he doesn't stop doing miracles. There's another question to ask, and that is, do you believe that God is merciful? But before, your answer, before you answer that, take a look at what God has done. Instead of considering his status as God something that he had to hold on to and had to, had to preserve, Jesus himself, God's Son, took on the status of a worthless servant. He was born miraculously in human flesh 
Son of God and Son of Mary. We call that the miracle of the incarnation, and we are going to celebrate that with all of our hearts in a couple of weeks. Jesus allowed himself to be faced with every kind of intense and subtle temptation that you face and did not once fall into it. And we call that the miracle of Jesus' active obedience. Jesus allowed himself to be crucified for us. The whole world's sin held against him, body and soul. It's called the miracle of the vicarious atonement. And having died, Jesus came back to life, proving once and for all that he is stronger than sin, stronger than your sin, stronger than death, the miracle of the resurrection. God is merciful. And to believe this is the second part of repentance. It's the miracle of faith. When this miraculous trust has worked in your heart by baptism and through the mercy of the Holy Spirit, stay strong throughout your life. We are saved. And that's what glorifies God. God's glory is not in taking really, really good people to heaven. God's glory is in taking sinners like us and taking away our sin through this process called repentance. In his mercy, he's chosen to save us. Your salvation is complete and God is glorified. When you have a repentant heart, but in another sense, repentance is never complete. It's something that needs to be constant because that, that, that desire of the world and of our sinful flesh to, to take us away from God is always chewing at us, is always tugging at us to fall into sin again, to be so arrogant again as to say to God, I don't need you, I don't need your directions, I can do what I feel like, and we fall. That was the trouble that Nebuchadnezzar had. Daniel had warned him, separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right, and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. And he did for a while, for a whole year, but then he got caught coasting. He let his guard down and got arrogant. And God kept both his threat to punish and his promise to restore once repentance had miraculously worked its way in his heart. That's the meaning of this account for us. You cannot afford to coast. If you had this for memory work as a kid, when you get home, open up your catechism and, and relearn it if you've forgotten it. Baptism means that the sinful nature in us should be drowned by daily sorrow and repentance and that it's all its evil deeds and desires be put to death. It also means that a new person should daily arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. It takes more than posting Christian things on Facebook or Instagram to glorify God. It takes more than imitating God by being good to glorify Him, though both those things are good. But glorifying God really means taking Him at His word and fearing Him over your sin daily. Glorifying God means taking Him at His word and believing that He is merciful and for Jesus' sake, forgives you constantly. Glorifying God means having a repentant heart. May God grant us all constantly repentant hearts and eternal salvation to his eternal glory. Amen.